Welcome to Stealing from Wizards Volume 1, Pickpocketing, by R.A. Consul, read by the author. Chapter 13. Dragonfay. Crow's pleasant feelings were not allowed to go unchallenged for long. Bella's story spread quickly across the island. The belief that Crow was dangerous and violent had redoubled, and now the whole school seemed to know that he had been the Winking Weasel, notorious serial thief. People avoided him in the hallways and clutched their bags more tightly when they passed. Every time something went missing, be it gold, glasses, or a dirty sock, he was blamed. Professor Dorager had gone from ignoring Kuro to actively avoiding him and encouraging others to keep a close eye on their potion supplies. To make matters much worse, some people had started forging more notes. Whether they did this as pranks or as cover for real thefts, Kuro couldn't know, but he suspected a bit of both. Even his friends, the ones who cared well enough to shed tears over his death, were wary of him. They eyed him suspiciously and didn't have much to say to him. It wasn't too bad in class, they were usually too busy to chat anyway, but dinner was a different story. They were all silent and their eyes were evasive. Even Charlie was quiet, paying all her attention to her fish stick and asparagus pie. After two days of this, Marie finally broke the silence. How much of it is true? she asked. Kuro thought this very charitable of her. Everyone else just accepted the whole story. The bandage over Bella's eyes was proof enough for most. Kuro didn't want to tell her the truth. He worried that she wouldn't be his friend anymore if she knew that he was a thief, and that he really had almost blinded Bella. He couldn't lie to her either, not just because he was a very poor liar, but she trusted him. If she was going to stop being his friend, he thought it should be because of the truth. About half, he managed to mumble as he poked an asparagus floretta around his plate. I am a thief, like they say, and I did cut her, but I didn't steal anything from her, and I didn't mean to hurt her. I just panicked. There was another lengthy silence, made more pronounced by the boisterous chatter at the other tables in the lodge's dining hall. Arthur was, uncharacteristically, the first to speak. Everyone has secrets, he said. I can understand why you wouldn't want to tell us this one. He paused for a while, as if he had something more to say on the subject, but changed his mind. But how did they know that you were the winking weasel? I don't really know, Crow admitted. Lucky guess, maybe? I'm going to ask my dad. Maybe he knows something, said Arthur. I'll send a letter tomorrow. Murray was not quite as quick to trust as Arthur. But you are a thief. You steal things? She looked increasingly uncomfortable sitting across from him. Until his confession, she might have been able to give him the benefit of the doubt. But now his criminal history was inescapable. Not anymore. Kuro said, slouching lower in his seat till his chin rested on the table. I don't need to here. They feed me plenty. Besides, I'm probably the worst wizard in the school, so why is everyone afraid of me? Any one of them could turn me inside out if they wanted, and they get all jumpy because I reached into somebody's pocket. Kuro must have said something right, because Marie turned from wary to sullen. You're not the worst wizard here either, she said glumly. That's me. No way, argued Kuro. You're way better than me in almost every class. That's just our reports and things. Ordinary school stuff. I'm no good at magic at all. At least you don't blow something up every time you try. They both laughed at their shared struggles, and the atmosphere at the table eased. 
With the release of tension, Charlie finally spoke, and it was like a dam broke. You could have told me, she said, grabbing Kuro and shaking him vigorously. Keeping a secret like that, I thought we were friends. Are you really the winking weasel? I heard that the weasel was supposed to be a really clever witch. How did you steal all those jewels and things? It's not like that, Kuro retorted. I borrowed sandwiches and loose change. I never took anything valuable. But how did you do it? She demanded excitedly. Are you just pretending to be bad at magic? Are you really a secretly trained ninja wizard from the Orient? What? Kuro replied, exasperated. No, is that even a thing? I didn't use magic. I just picked things up when people weren't looking. What? Like an ordinary thief? Charlie looked crestfallen. Well, you must have had some adventures, right? Exciting times, daring heists, far-flung romances. Charlie had clearly read too many storybooks. With the returned support of his friends, Crow felt somewhat shielded from the dirty looks and accusations of the other students. Things kept getting worse, though. He almost always had someone's familiar spying on him, despite the rules about keeping them in sight. If ever he was found alone, he was immediately accused of attempting to burgle someone. By the third time Crow had been cornered in a hallway by a third year shouting at him to return their enchantment homework, his friends decided that something had to be done. You've been framed, said Charlie at breakfast with a mouthful of waffled eggs. Don't you want to see justice and clear your name? We just have to prove your innocence and show McCutcheon that you really didn't do anything. But I'm not innocent, Crow argued. I really did stab someone in the face. She's lucky she didn't lose her eye. It's fine, really. I'll just do my detentions and hopefully people will forget all about this. I don't want you guys getting in trouble because of me. It is not fine, Marie argued. You had to run halfway across the island yesterday to get away from that Vertime girl who thought you had stolen her diary. I agree with Charlie. We have to stop this before you get hurt again. Kuro had hoped that Marie would have been the reasonable one. He looked to Arthur for a level head. I think I've already found our first clue, said Arthur, holding up a copy of the Sealy Times, which had been sent to him by his father. An article had been circled in red. Kuro threw up his hands in defeat. Arthur began reading robotically. Winking Weasel at Avalon, read the headline. The Times has uncovered evidence that the attempted robbery of wingtips on August 26 was perpetuated by none other than the notorious thief the Winking Weasel. While the Hound's office has not wavered from their official statement that there were no suspects in the crime, and Schumacher himself has been tight-lipped, witnesses of the event have come forward. They confided that there had been a duel in the streets and a youth who had fled the scene of the crime. All reports of the weasel activity have ceased since the incident. Who was the assailant? Is the weasel a student at Avalon? What aren't the hounds telling us? Are your children safe? There was also a photo of some of Kuro's notes. Charlie slammed her fist on the table victoriously. That explains how they knew it was you! And how they made a copy of your IOUs? Marie said enthusiastically. What's our next step? asked Arthur in his unwavering monotone. They all turned to Kuro, as if this were somehow his idea. He stared back silently for a while before conceding. I guess we have to prove that the notes are fake somehow? The plan they worked out was pretty simple. The other three would try to collect the IOU notes under the pretense of building a case to get Kuro expelled. While they did that, Kuro would try to find a way to prove that they were forgeries. His friends couldn't be seen being too friendly with Kuro, so they only talked to each other when they could find private places to meet in secret. That meant more isolation for him. 
It also meant that he spent a lot of time exploring the island on his own while trying to find places to hide from his accusers. The more he looked, the more he found. The school itself was expansive. The insides were folded back on themselves even more than Kuro's old apartment building in Detritus Lane. There was a corridor that had seven left turns and never crossed itself. A staircase that led out on three extra floors which appeared largely unused. A full gymnasium hidden in a closet and a second library inside a cupboard in the main library. The snowy forests around Wertheim were too cold to spend much time in outside, but a splendid garden grew in a greenhouse that was almost always empty. Despite it being fairly warm inside, the thick snow and cold weather of the winter quarter kept most students from wandering out of the golden halls of Wertheim. It was a shame, too, as someone was clearly tending to the sprawling garden of snow blossom bushes, holly leaves, and glittering icicle vines. The few students that did come to the garden tended to be in pairs and were far too involved with each other to notice a small boy doing his homework in a back corner. In the summer quarter, he found a secluded grove of elephant ferns with leaves so big he could lie on them. Other students avoided the grove as it grew out of a rather smelly bog. Nobody else seemed to consider using the leaves as support. Kuro would lie in the hot summer sun, safe from almost anyone. The spring quarter was the busiest, having the junior high, the amphitheater, the Chateau du Printemps, and the best weather, so Kuro didn't hide there often. When it rained, however, the spring forest emptied of other people, and the air filled with a rich scent of wet soil and new leaves. One tree had a particular hollow that he could sit in and watch the raindrops on the river. Kuro's best hiding spot was one he could use only rarely. Danny's house in the Blandlands took almost an hour to get to from school and he had to leave before her dinner was delivered. Every night, Ms. McCutcheon would come with food and wood for Danny, and it didn't seem like a good idea for her to find him outside the veil. Kuro used that refuge sparingly. Only when he was completely cut off from his friends and unable to hide elsewhere would he risk slipping through the veil by the ferry dock and taking the long walk in the cold to Danny's place. She was always pleased to see him, She made him foul-smelling tea, told him about the birds on the island as she worked or read, and tried to send him home with books. Kuro played with Gray while he listened to stories about ptarmigans, snow geese, and pintails, and politely refused to take the books that he knew he wouldn't be able to read. Playing with Gray was strange. On the streets, they had been partners. They had kept each other warm, safe, and fed. Seeing his scrawny ally become plump and playful warmed his heart. Even if she had been taken from him, Kuro was grateful to Danny for taking such good care of the battered stray cat. One other thing Kuro couldn't hide from were his classes. They continued their relentless progress, leaving Kuro further and further behind. Everyone else, even Marie, could do simple evocations now. They could all reliably get textbooks to float, boil a kettle, and freeze an ice cube, and some of them had become so skilled with illusions that they could make lights dance around the room. Kuro had still not successfully cast anything that he was supposed to, though his skill was slowly improving. As long as he was calm and focused, he could reliably get nothing at all to happen. He hadn't thrown himself or anything else across the room or been sent to the nurse in days. Mr. Oganov even congratulated him for his dedication to overcoming his deficiency. That praise did not prevent Oganov from also drawing attention to Kuro's alleged crime spree. There has been something of a rash of disappearances of late, he said in class in the last week of October. I thought it might be of interest to learn the finding charm. Several members of the class glowered at Kuro at the mention of missing items. 
It's a relatively simple charm, Aganov continued, but very different from anything we have tried yet in class. Unlike our previous evocations, this one requires the use of a magical implement, a dowsing rod. With a flourish, he revealed a taper stick a little longer than a pencil. You must first choose the object you wish to find. It must be something you know very well, something dear to you, and something you can picture in your mind perfectly. Something that you have put a little bit of yourself into. Things that you have made yourself are a very good choice, as are cherished mementos. People and pets won't do. They've much too much of a mind of their own. Everyone now, choose an object. He punctuated his instruction with a burst of brilliant blue flame from his palm. Kuro knew exactly what to look for. He only had one precious possession, and it had been missing since the fight with Bella and Seth. His shoes. He was a little concerned that the rod wouldn't be able to distinguish his shoes from any other pair. He was considerably more worried that he would detonate some portion of the classroom. Once you have your object firmly in mind, extend your index finger and balance your dowsing rod on top of it, instructed Oganov. There was a clattering of rods falling as students fumbled to find balance points. Kuro, for once, didn't have a problem following instructions. His little twig had a well-placed crook, and it sat wobbling only slightly on his outstretched finger. He closed his eyes and imagined his shoes. He pictured what they looked like, remembered how they felt on his feet when he ran, felt their absence tug at his heartstrings. His rod started to rotate on his finger as if a nail had been driven through it. It spun slowly in one direction, then the other, like a compass needle. Now that everyone has their dowsing rods ready... Hold that object firmly on your mind and focus your intention steadily forward in a low G flat. He pounded on the appropriate piano key to help people tune their thoughts. Kuro tried his best to match the note with his mind, but the wand shot off his finger, bounced off his face, and spun across the class. Don't worry if you don't get it the first time, said Oganov as he levitated Kuro's rod back to him. It's more of an advanced evocation than we've tried before. By the end of class, about half of the students had succeeded in getting their rod to obey. Kuro had no luck in getting his rod to stay on his finger. He was annoyed at himself. He wanted this evocation to work more than any other. It almost seemed to be working too, but as soon as he tried to tune his thoughts, it just shot off across the room in no particular direction. Complete failure aside, the class had given Kuro an idea. He waited around after class for a chance to talk to Oganov in private. Excuse me, sir, said Kuro as politely as he could. Could I have a moment of your time? Of course, replied Oganov brightly. Oganov was almost always friendly to Kuro. Kuro assumed it was a continued effort to win his trust as a spy for Dubois, but he could use that friendliness to his advantage. What seems to be the trouble? I was just wondering, said Kuro, trying to sound innocently curious. If there is an evocation to help people find lost things... Is there an opposite one? To help lost things find their owners? Are you perhaps looking to have some things find their way back to where they belong? Oganov had a twinkle in his eye and a warm smile on his face. He had misunderstood Kuro's intention and thought that Kuro wanted to return stolen goods. Fortunately, he thought this was a course of action worth supporting. Well, there is a returning charm. It's quite a complex spell that high school students learn in advanced spellcraft. I could give you the name of a book in the library that would have it. Thank you very much, sir, said Kuro gratefully. I doubt you'll be able to cast it yourself, Oganov warned. 
but I do always encourage students to study ahead, don't I? If you need any help at all, I'll be happy to show you how it's done. Oganov gave Kuro a wink as he scrawled the title of the book on a piece of paper and sent him on his way. It was a start. Kuro was certain that he wouldn't be able to cast the spell, but maybe Charlie would be able to do it. She was the best of them at magic. If they could get it to work, maybe they could get one of the IOUs to fly back to their creators. It was worth a shot. He didn't have time to get to the library that day, though. He had to dash to make it to French on time, and he and his classmates barely had time to choke down lunch before Spellcraft. They slid into their seats, still shoving pickled beet and herring sandwiches into their mouths. They had spent the past couple of months learning about the nature of magical fields and how they bent space within them. It was Kuro's least unfavorite class, partly because Ms. Crawley had been reasonably kind to Kuro, and he felt as though he was actually learning something, but mostly because, until this point, he hadn't had to do any magic. Today promised to rectify that. Ms. Crawley had informed them last class that they would be starting to practice protective magic this week. Kuro anticipated a day of getting blasted around the room as he failed to defend himself, or worse, blasting himself around the room as his spells backfired. Ms. Crawley entered the room, obviously concealing something behind her back. She wore the same tight expression she always did, which made her lips look a bit like an owl's beak, but a hint of mischievousness sparked in her large eyes. I promised that this week we would begin training you to better resist the effects of magic, she began, but a shield can only be tested if you have something against which to defend yourself. To that end, we shall begin learning your first spell. Her voice was dark and filled with ominous portent. Wicked, blurted out Charlie excitedly. Of course, continued the teacher, you will need to practice the spell on something other than each other while you master it. Can anyone tell me, she said as she brought her hands out from behind her back and displayed what she was holding to the class, what this is. She held up an iridescent black and blue blur of legs, spines, and teeth. That's a dragon fay, ma'am, said Charlie immediately, not remembering to put up her hand. They sometimes nest in our crabapple trees. They eat lots of pests like mice and locusts, but they can get really bitey if you disturb their nests. But their nests are sometimes hard to see because they're made of leaves and... Thank you, Charlie, Ms. Crawley interrupted, though not vigorously enough to give Charlie any pause. They love sweets, she continued, not pausing for breath. And I ate a big lollipop just under one of their trees one time, and they were all over it, and their jaws got stuck, and... Thank you, Charlie, Ms. Crawley repeated more crisply. She put down the angry little creature into a wire mesh cage on her desk. It settled enough that they could get a clear look at it. It was like a dragonfly and a lizard had made a very angry baby. It had six spindly legs, each with razor-sharp talons at the end, and four insectoid wings which buzzed loudly as it fluttered around its cage. It had a long, thin tail that trailed behind it, and a wide mouth full of vicious fangs that gnashed at the class. The whole thing was covered in black scales that glimmered purple and blue when it caught the light. This is, as Miss Cook correctly identified, a dragon fay. They're nasty little guys and will nip off your finger if you let them. Fortunately for us, they are also very ticklish, what with having an extended rib cage and six feet. She took a minute to smile at the class as they stewed in their confusion. The spell we will be learning today is the tickling spell. She distributed a small caged dragon fay to each desk, with strong warnings to keep the doors sealed. The warning was immediately ignored by Charlie, who had pulled a honeycomb and raisin cookie from her bag 
and had her ferocious critter eating out of her hand. In most ways, a spell is no different from the evocations you've all been becoming so accomplished with. Ms. Crawley nodded to the class encouragingly, though Kuro didn't find her words terribly comforting. The only difference is that you can bind up more nuanced thoughts and manipulate energy more precisely with the use of words. To cast a spell correctly, you need to say the word, but also have a really good understanding of what they mean and push them out with intention. It is still your thoughts that matter. The words help add clarity and complexity to those thoughts, and the sounds help to give shape and direction to the spell. She paused a moment to let the students absorb what she'd said and get accustomed to the furious little monsters on their desks. Can anyone remember what the first word you learned in Elvish class was? There was a murmur of uncertainty. Louder? Jennifer Tanaka proposed hesitantly. Good. And what does it mean? Laughter, said several people confidently. Does anyone think that an odd word for it to be the first one you learn? Asked Miss Crawley with a mischievous smirk. The class nodded in agreement. Miss Frigard starts with louder because we need you to get very familiar with it before this lesson. The tickling spell is one of the simplest spells there is. Just one word and no complicated movements. You just have to point... Ms. Crawley turned to face the caged dragon fay on her desk and extended her right index finger towards it. Know the words and fill them with their meaning. She closed her eyes for a moment as if to meditate on the idea, then speak them perfectly with the full weight of intention. Louder. She spoke the word in a light and bubbly tone, almost a laugh in itself. A flurry of ghostly orange petals extended from her finger and swirled around the dragon fay. The snarling beast immediately dropped to the floor of the cage and started squirming and chittering out a squeaky little giggle. She went over the finer details of the spell a few times, then released the students to practice on their own. Some of the more skilled students, those for whom Elvish had been spoken at home and had private tutoring before coming to Avalon, mastered the spell in minutes. With a bright and light louder, a small blast of orange petals shot from the tips of their fingers and tickled the dragon fay for a moment making the tiny monsters giggle and squirm. Kuro took some time to build up the courage to try the spell. He'd never done any magic on a living thing before and worried for its safety. With much of the class already tickling their dragon fay mercilessly, he steeled himself and pointed at his cage on his desk. Everyone in the seats around him paused their work to drag their desks to a safer distance. The scraping of legs drew the attention of Ms. Crawley. What's all this, then? She demanded as several students ducked behind their chairs for cover. Kuro's a menace, said Oliver Kagan. Never know what will happen when he does magic. Oh, don't be ridiculous, replied Ms. Crawley. Get back to your seats and stop bullying your classmate. She obviously hadn't been speaking to Oganov much. Oh, it's okay, said Kuro glumly. This dragon face should probably be hiding, too. Just take your time and relax, she said comfortingly. Nothing about this spell can do any harm. The worst you can do is have nothing happen at all. Being watched by the teacher and the entire class did not fill Kuro with confidence. His insides felt hollow and his hands clammy. His arm felt like a piece of rubber as he raised his hand to cast. He pointed and in his bubbliest voice said, Lauder. A stream of black ash spewed from the palm of his hand and engulfed the little dragon fay. It stopped fluttering and collapsed, unmoving to the bottom of the cage. 
The class gasped in horror as Ms. Crawley's eyes went wide. She rushed over to the cage to inspect the fallen dragon fay. She risked opening the cage door and prodded the comatose creature. Curious, she mumbled very quietly to herself. Then, more loudly so the rest of the class could hear, she said, Just stunned. A good tickle will get him right as rain. She pointed her hand at Kuro's dragon fay and said, Latir. Unlike the fleeting burst from her demonstration, she maintained her focus, and the petals continued to swirl around the tiny monster. It started to stir, then to snarl angrily at the magical assault, but finally yielded to the tickling and started to giggle and squirm. Mercifully, the bell to signal the end of class rang. Please bring your dragon fae back to the front and read pages 104 through 127 in preparation for next class, shouted Ms. Crawley above the din of students rushing to escape the room. And Kuro, please stay behind if you have a minute. Kuro caught a sympathetic look from his friends as they exited, but they were still pretending not to get along, so they couldn't do much more than that for him. He sat defeated in his chair. A second teacher was about to scold him for dangerous foolishness in class over which he had no control. Ms. Crawley fetched one of the short student chairs and pulled up close to Kuro. She looked down at him with her large quizzical eyes, which her glasses magnified absurdly. How did you do that? She asked without a hint of accusation. She seemed genuinely curious. I don't know, said Kuro. Everything I cast comes out wrong. Could you do it again? She brought out a caged dragon fay and set it down for him. Kuro did his best. He thought hard about the word, focused on his understanding of the word, pointed, and said, Flutter. Exactly the same thing happened. A burst of ash and a crumpled pile of dragon fay. As Ms. Crawley revived the creature, she muttered to herself, Fascinating. She examined the dragon fay closely before reviving it with a vigorous tickle and then asked him to do it again. He did, with the same effect. Once she had the thing back up and about, she turned to Kuro, wearing a tight little smile. How very curious. What's so curious? Kuro grumbled. I'm just bad at spells. No, contested the teacher with absolute certainty. You are not. Kuro stared at the dragon fay, still unmoving in a pile of its own limbs. It did not look like he had successfully tickled it. Huh? he asked, scratching his head. Your problem is not that you are bad at casting spells, Ms. Crawley stated firmly. You have cast the same spell three times in a row without fail. That's quite good for someone new to spellcraft. The issue is not with your ability. I believe it has much more to do with your relationship with the language. Do you know what spell you just cast? Um, the tickling spell, but very badly, Curl replied. You did not cast Flatter, not even a little. What you cast is a rather nasty debilitating spell, Dollar. It is, as you might guess, not one we teach in this class. Where did you learn it? I didn't, Crow said defensively. I've never heard of it before. Truly. She tapped her small beaky nose with her finger as she considered Kuro. Can you tell me about your strongest memories of laughter? Kuro felt his blood drain from his face and his chest constrict. The memory of Phineas's hollow laughter following the murder of Helena crashed over him in waves. Kuro couldn't speak. Just shaking his head in refusal was an effort. Ms. Crawley's brow furrowed in concern, but she did her best to move on. Then this all makes sense. 
Ms. Crawley seemed quite satisfied with herself, but Kuro was still completely in the dark. What makes sense? He asked, somewhat afraid of what she'd been able to divine from his reaction. She began to explain, sounding much more like a teacher again. The power of a spell is that the words carry meaning when spoken, and the specific words that you use matter because their cadence and melody helped sculpt the magical effect. That's why we must say lotter, not laugh, for the spell to work, and we must say it in a specific way. Does that make sense? Crow nodded. That party understood they'd covered it in class pretty extensively, but he couldn't make sense of why she was repeating it to him. Satisfied with his response, she continued to lecture. The actual words do not really matter, though. Kuro goggled. But you just said... She gave him a quieting glance and spoke on. Words themselves don't have any power. If you write in a book, it's just a word. The real power comes from the meaning you give it when you use it. It is your thoughts that drive the magic, not the words. So, if, for example you associate a powerful feeling of grief with the idea of laughter and speak the word flatter with the cadence of dollar, you might end up inflicting concentrated sadness on a dragon fay instead of tickling it. Is that what I was doing? Crow demanded, horrified at what he'd done to the little monster. Yes, Ms. Crawley said, as though apologizing. The dragon fay was not injured or unconscious, it was just too sad to move. Ms. Crawley looked sympathetic. I'm sorry I made you cast it so many times. I didn't recognize it at first. I've never actually seen it done. Most people can't cast dollar. I couldn't even if I tried. You have to truly understand the feeling. She stood and shook off the sense of gloom that had settled in the room. Perhaps we should have you try a different spell, she said brightly, as if the rest of the conversation had never happened. Creor, maybe. It makes things hungry. How does that sound? Kuro nodded his agreement. Hunger was certainly something he had much more experience with than laughter. Ms. Crawley spent the next hour going over the details of the spell with Kuro. It was more complicated than Latir. It still had only one word, but Kuro had trouble getting his mouth to wrap around the consonants correctly while rising and falling in pitch. There were also more motions. It wasn't just pointing a finger. A couple of sweeping gestures had to be done just at the right speed and Crow's musical skill really hadn't improved much. After working on each piece separately for a while, they tried to put it all together. Ms. Crawley demonstrated first. As she moved and sang out a word, a blue mist trailed from her hands, which she gathered and pushed towards a dragon fay. As the mist settled on the creature, its behavior shifted from furious to ravenous. It scurried around its cage, trying to find something to lock its jaws on. Ms. Crawley pulled out a bit of maple toffee from her desk and slipped it into the cage. It would be cruel to leave it in that state, she said as they watched it gnaw gleefully on the sticky ball. Ready to try? Crow tried to swallow his nerves as he mumbled, Okay. Thankfully, Ms. Crawley did not direct him to try his first shot at the dragon fay. She had him aim at a pencil instead. Crow did what he'd been taught as well as he could. He focused on the idea of hunger swung his arms up and down and back to guide and collect the energy of the spell as he sang out the word Greor and then pushed it forward. The effect was familiar and explosive. A burst of wind shot him backwards across the room and sent the pencil in the desk it had been on flying in the other direction. Kuro wasn't hurt, having become fairly well-practiced at catching himself after these incidents. 
Ms. Crawley, though, was shocked and worried. Oh my goodness, are you okay? She asked, running to help Kuro up. It's fine, he replied, straightening his clothes. I'm used to it. This happens often, she asked, her concern shifting quickly to curiosity. All the time. I have a special desk in evocation so I don't hit anyone. Curious, she said before shaking some stray thoughts away and returning to the task at hand. Try it again, but don't try to force the spell into shape. Allow the words to form it for you. Remember, wizards are lazy. They wouldn't do it if it was hard work. She was right about that. Wizards never did anything that magic couldn't do for them. Maybe he was putting too much effort into it. He relaxed, let himself be unmotivated, and did his best to ignore his ever-present worry. He cast, and nothing happened. Well, that's an improvement of sorts, said Miss Crowley approvingly. Now let's work on crisping up your intonation. Another half hour passed with nothing happening. He was starting to get frustrated and hungry. Dinner had probably started. He worried that he had gotten soft since being here if being a few minutes late for a meal had started to bother him. He ignored the grumblings in his stomach and pressed on. Ms. Crawley was impossibly patient. She'd watched him fail to cast the spell a hundred times and never wavered in her encouragement. She was alert and attentive to his every motion. She made tiny corrections to his form and celebrated when he made progress. Kuro had never had anyone pay so much attention to him or care about his success. He started to wonder if this is what it was like to have a parent. An hour in, and he was just about ready to give up when something happened. He felt it. The words meant something. They connected to the growing hunger inside him and became entangled in the motion of his hands. They nodded together, and a wisp of blue mist drifted from his hands and evaporated. Ms. Crawley applauded loudly. That's it! That's it! Did you feel it? Yeah, said Kuro. I think I did. Do you want to try it on a dragon, Faye? Ms. Crawley asked. Yeah, repeated Kuro. I think I do. He faced his tiny adversary in its cage. It scrambled to attack him through the mesh and made an angry squeaking noise. Kuro relaxed, got lazy, let the word form in his mind and then in his mouth. He waved his hands and then said in a long, breathy sigh, Greor. A stream of blue mist flowed out and encircled the little monster. As it settled, it stopped trying to attack Kuro through the cage and started scrambling for something to eat. Well done! Ms. Crawley smiled as she pushed a toffee into the cage. It wasn't just a tiny smirk, but one that reached all the way up through her cheeks to her eyes, turning them into joyful crescent moons. I'm very proud of you. Kuro felt his eyes get wet and his chest get heavy. He tried to thank her, but he kept choking on the words as his heart seemed to be trying to crawl up his throat. All he could do was nod. Keep practicing and you'll have mastered it by next week, said Ms. Crawley, patting him on the back and handing him in his bag. Now go get some dinner before it's gone. Kuro was just about to leave the class when Ms. Crawley called back. One more thing before you go, and I don't think I need to say this to you. But if I find that anyone has been rendered catatonic with grief, you'll be in front of the principal so fast your head will spin. Thank you for listening to Stealing from Wizards. If you liked our show, please consider rating or reviewing on iTunes. If you want to support this podcast or just can't wait for the next chapter, the full book is available on Amazon, Kobo, and Indigo. Our theme music was written by Camille Saint-Saëns, transcribed by Franz Liszt, performed by Rebecca Verdun, and used with permission. This episode was produced by Jim Tigwell.